speaker tonight is a dude. And I'm telling you what kind of dude he is. He is an awesome dude. Got a great story. Even though I haven't heard it, I know it's great. And, uh, but I'll tell you the quality of sobriety and, and, uh, and banter and um, just, uh, he's definitely got uh, what I want. And so I'll, I think he'll have what you want as well. So without any further ado and without any doubt, let us hear from Max. You will have to be. Boy. There we go. My name is Max and I'm an alcoholic. Mike, thank you for that uh, uh, amazing little intro. That, that uh, Yeah, I, I hope I live up to the expectations set by Mike here. Um, welcome to all those who are new, who, uh, those of you who are celebrating milestones, congratulations. Um, I myself am coming rapidly coming up on a milestone. My sobriety date is March 11th. 2006 so the clock is ticking on that um i know many of us find secular groups because mainstream aa doesn't suit us for whatever reasons and um i had the good fortune that i got sober in an area that was a little less rigid and more accepting of alternative spiritual beliefs and there was a point in my sobriety where I was able to explore those and, and come to terms with those and do so publicly, although we do have pockets of rigidity here and there in, in this particular area. I'm in Northern California. Um, I'm, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, Santa Clara, just a couple, I'm just about an hour away from, from San Francisco itself. I, I started drinking when I was about 11. And at first it was just experimentation. It was just trying to fit in. My older brother had classmates and, and friends who he looked up to and, and looked to as role models. And at a certain point he started uh, uh, emulating their behavior. And at a certain point I started emulating his behavior. Um, and it was either fifth or sixth grade. I, uh, I had a classmate, his parents were European and both of them worked. The Europeans have a bit different attitudes than we do about, about teenage drinking. So we would go to his house after school and drink a ton of this man's booze, uh, a ton of his dad's booze rather. And um, you know, his parents weren't home. We just like several times a week, we were at his house drinking his dad's booze. And I had a great time. And there were a lot of interesting things that had happened and um, there were a lot of interesting things that happened that uh, 11, 12, 13 year olds should not be involved in. Um, got into high school and everything was geared towards being this huge party. It was all about smoking weed during the week. And on the weekends, it was all about uh, finding somebody's parents or somebody's house whose parents were out of town or driving out into the hills in some random side of the road where we could just drink and do what it was we needed to do. And uh, it was nonstop. It was, it was uh, my mission in life from my waking moment till the time I went to sleep was to get loaded, stay loaded, be loaded. Um, even, even in my sophomore uh, junior year in, in high school, I could tell things were getting a bit out of hand and uh, I, I didn't like this lifestyle. Uh, I was doing it every day. I was waking up as early as possible to catch the earliest bus I could to get to school as early as I could to get things started as early as I could. And my friend Nick and I would be doing our thing in somewhere near school in someone's side yard where the, the neighbor or the homeowner had gone off to work early and we would be doing our thing and people would be showing up to school and we'd be lit and and People would be showing up and being envy of us if we, we thought we were the coolest thing. And um, you know, even, even that point, it was like, I, I, I was thinking this is getting out of hand. I didn't know how to stop this, this ball from rolling. It just kept going. Um, I picked up my first DUI. I was 16 years old. I wrecked my car and uh, I got, got my conviction and got put on probation. 
and I utilized the, the situation to distance myself from my friends. I, uh, I told them, hey, I can't be doing the things that, uh, that you guys are doing. I need, a, I need to walk the straight and narrow here. I need to back away from this a bit. And some of them were, were uh, accepting of this, and, and some of them were not. Some of them were very vocal about uh, the, the feeling that I had let them down in some way. Um, but I was, I was kind of okay with that. And, um, you know, they did not send me to AA at the time. They sent me to some teen youth counseling group at, uh, at, at some local, uh, hospital. And, uh, they didn't talk about program. There was just basically teen counseling. And I was the only person in there who had any, any desire for, for change in his life. Everybody else was just jumping through the hoops. This was all having direct relation to uh, various cases. There wasn't a person in there who didn't have some criminal case going on. And um, I, I honestly didn't get much out of that. And in my, my senior year uh, high school at a certain point, I thought, hey, I can give this another go. I can start this get this going. I, I can just be careful. I know what I know. And I'll just be careful. And as long as there's no drugs in the picture, I'll be fine. I, I can just drink and I'll be fine. And uh, there you have my pattern. I drink. I drink heavily. I drink to excess. I drink the way I want to. I start leading a lifestyle that's beneath my moral standards, my goals, my aspirations, my values start becoming less and less important. Uh, drugs may come into the picture, may not. Things start getting out of hand and I may get a consequence. I may get another case or, or not. And um, in what, for whatever reason, there, there comes a point at which I, I take a look in and I back away. And so my, my drinking comes in these waves where it goes up and I back away from it and it goes up and I back away from it. I look to, um, if, if I look at the pattern, what, what I see is the, the time from where I, I, sometimes I quit. Sometimes I quit altogether. I've had a few moments here and there. I, at a certain point when I was in college, I, I was approached by a staff member. And this was the only time in, in my drinking career that I, I, uh, somebody expressed concern in my drinking. And I actually listened to him. And he told me that he had, he had been sober for about 13 years. He didn't say anything about support groups. He didn't say anything about AA. He didn't say anything about meeting. He just said that he had realized at a certain point in his life, he had problems with drinking and that, um, and that uh, he managed to quit drinking and had not had a drink for 13 years. And I listened to him. And the only reason why I listened to him when I, when I look back at, at my history and this being the only person that I ever listened to is because he interacted with me in a way that told me, that made it clear to me that he wasn't judging me. Any other time somebody talked about my drinking, I was like, you know what? No, I'm, I'm not listening to you for one minute. I didn't, didn't want to hear anything of it. Um, it, it. Anytime somebody expressed concern in my drinking, my, my reaction was to kind of push that back and drink even harder. But when this guy spoke to me, I, I managed to take into con consideration what he was saying and, and take a look at some things. And, and I managed to quit drinking for, for several months. And, uh, you know, I was living in the party dorms. I was living on a party campus. I, uh, I was at UC Santa Cruz, a campus which at the time was known for partying. And, and you know, I was one of the guys where anything weird happened, they'd be looking at me or a couple of my friends. And uh, then I managed to put together a little bit of time. But aside from, from that particular time, anytime I quit, each time, the time from, the, hey, this is getting out of hand, to the time where I think I can do this again. And as long as I'm careful, I know the things I know. I know the direction this goes, as long as this doesn't happen, as long as that doesn't happen. That time gets shorter and shorter. And then, and then I decide, hey, I'm going to drink. I'll be careful this time. And then I keep drinking. And then I start drinking the way I want to. It ramps up quicker and quicker each time. The, the, the consequences get more and more extreme each time. Um, I picked up my second DUI in 2001. And the circumstances around that were such that 
it was easy for me to look at, at the situation and go, oh, I just made a mistake. But at the time I was going, I would go out drinking and I would go to the places I wanted to. And over the course of the night, I would drive from one bar to the next and get closer and closer to home. And the last bar I would hit would be one that's about a mile and a half from away from my house and I could take surface roads and avoid all the uh, main streets. So I would, I would be less likely to encounter a cop. That was my rationale. I had this planned out to go from one to the next to the next. I got pulled over as I'm pulling into this, uh, to the parking lot of the bar. And uh, I had a light out of the license plate. I ended up with a blood alcohol level of 0 0.09. Uh, just above the legal limit. And, and so here I was thinking, oh, I had made a mistake. Um, now, because, because the first one happened before I was 18, when I turned 18, that thing got sealed. So, so the courts looked at this one as though this is my, my first DUI. I go to the first time DUI class and, and there's, this, uh, there's this counselor, this, this salty biker, and he had been sober for quite a bit of time and he kind of went off book with what uh dui counselors are supposed to do they're supposed to kind of be encouraging and they're supposed to they've got their certain uh a curriculum where they're supposed to get people to look at their habits of drinking and driving and he didn't do any of that he would like ask go through the crowd find an individual ask them particular questions and when he found out that they had some interesting stories he would grill these people particular individuals on um, their relationship with alcohol. And, and he knew how to pick them. He would pick some people with some really strange stories and some interesting levels of uh, rationalization and denial around those stories. And I just sat there in awe at what this guy could do. And I did not take into account that I could be using this opportunity to look at that for myself, that I could be looking at this moment and and examining my own relationship with alcohol. Um, while I was on probation for that one, I was very careful. I wouldn't drink and drive. I would drink at home or drink at a friend's house. And then once I got off probation, things kind of escalated. I would go, um, you know, push the envelope a little bit. I would, I would say, okay, I can, I can have a couple, and then just do what I want. And um, you know, I'm the type of guy that, that drinking and driving is kind of my kick. You get a few drinks in me and I want to go joyriding. And a lot of times it's joyriding in your car. There were moments where, where that was exactly what would happen. I'd be like, a friend of mine had this new car. You just got a stick. Uh, and, and he didn't know how to drive manual transmission. And I said, I could show you a thing or two. And basically what would happen is we'd be get a few drinks in us and we'd be joyriding his car around the west side of Santa Cruz. Um, 2002, I ended up, uh, in this punk rock band, uh, based out of Boulder Creek and things got real interesting, real quick. At first, it's just rehearsing a couple of nights and, and then it, within a few months, it became the scene. And by the time 2004 rolled around in, it is definitely a scene where things are way out of hand, the drugs are involved, the uh, fill in the blank, you know, imagine the, the, the story, punk rockers and drugs and, and alcohol and all kinds of nuts, uh, things going on. And even then, at that point, I was, I was looking at this going, things are getting out of hand. 2004 was kind of ugly. Um, 2005, I was, uh, again, trying to kind of like look at what I was doing and, and calm things down. I was working in Santa Cruz and uh, we would work in pairs. And I got paired off with this girl from Oklahoma and she had uh, fled Oklahoma. She was running from a number of cases. She ended up on the streets of Santa Cruz. She ended up homeless on the streets of Santa Cruz. And at a certain point, she managed to get things together. She was in some kind of uh, living rehab on the west side which was walking distance from where we worked. And uh, she ended up working with us. She ended up getting paired off with me and she would tell me these things about what she was doing, how she had to write things down and look at herself. And she was worried about what she might find. 
and in the summer of 2005, at a certain point, she was uh, making phone calls to Oklahoma, doing what I later found was step nine. And uh, I, I got to watch this happen. I got to watch somebody who, who uh, ended up homeless on the streets of Santa Cruz in a rehab, doing some 12-step work, putting her life back together. And I got to watch this work for her. I picked up my third DUI in September of 2005. I didn't know what to do. And, and even at that time, I was, I was uh, already at that point in my drinking where this has gotten way out of hand and I'm leading this lifestyle again. And uh, a friend of mine put me in contact with somebody who had a little bit of time. And, and I talking on the phone with this guy and he says, go to a meeting. I said, fantastic, great, I'll go to a meeting. Um, and, uh, I went to a meeting and, and he said, he said, call me when you're done. And, then, and I went to the meeting and, uh, I called him when I was done and he says, what do you think? And I said, I don't think I could do this. And he's like, why not? And I said, it was this God thing. And he, he didn't lecture me on what I could do. He didn't try to sell God to me. He didn't even say power greater than yourself of your understanding. He asked me questions. He asked me questions about what I thought, what my ideas are, what my philosophies are. And, and at a certain point in that discussion, he said, you'll be fine. Just whenever they talk about God, you think of those things. And I said, okay, I, I, I can give this a go. Um, I got a sponsor and I would love to say, hey, happy ending. I, I got a sponsor. I work the steps. It's all good. Life is great. And, and that's not really what happened. I got a sponsor and I was still terrified of everyone. I, uh, I was terrified of coming out of my shell. I was terrified of, I mean, I no longer had this crutch. It took me a couple of years to realize I don't have any emotional coping skills and I don't know how to interact with a person unless I'm just drunk or loaded or high or what. I have, I have uh, no skills whatsoever. Um, and, and anyway, uh, I had a couple of weeks and, um, as somebody says to me, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. I remember it was this guy with about 10, 11 years and he was from Texas. So he had that drawl and he said, desire to stop drinking. And, and he had that inflection on the word drinking. I'm like, I went home and got high. I picked up a 30 day chip with maybe three days. Might have a couple of days when I picked up a 60-day chip. I would, uh, I, I took a 90-day chip. I, I'm pretty sure I was high when I took a 90-day chip. I was taking service commitments, um, and and doing all this, and I was completely lying about the amount of time I had holding on to this September 2005 sobriety date. Um, I was working steps. My first sponsor, when he when, when it came to step one, he had me writing some stuff. There's been a number of times, and I'll get to that in a minute. I've worked steps a number of different ways. Uh, I know that that for some people, written steps where the book doesn't say to write is controversial because the book doesn't say so. Any assignment that I've been given that's not on the book, uh, I have found extremely helpful. Uh, he had me write some things out for step one. And, and I remember some of this stuff because he, he told me to write down what I felt, what happened the day of my UI. And somewhere in there, I was talking about, and then he had me read it out to him. And somewhere in there, I was talking about, you know, what did I do? If I had done anything different, this wouldn't happen. And after I finished reading to him what I had written down, he said, if you had done anything different and this not happen, you'd just be prolonging the, prolonging the inevitable and you'd eventually end up here anyway. And it might, under be, might even be under worse circumstances. And, and I remember that, I remember him saying that. And what he told me to do, he said, okay, take that, tear that page out of your notebook, fold it up and put it in your wallet. And that way, whether you're gonna, if, if you're thinking you don't wanna be sober, whether you're gonna buy a drink or whether you're gonna buy a bottle or whether you're gonna buy some drugs, you gotta bring your wallet with you. So it's right there, you can read that. And that, now you have it in your own words that this is a bad idea. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and for step two, he had me do some things that um, 
he, had, he had me do some some writing things about what I believe. And, and again, I, I had that opportunity to, to look at certain things and, and run with what I believe instead of what 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 other people were were holding on to. Um, and, and that kind of worked for a little while. I mean, I, I was I was broken enough that I was like desperate enough to stay sober. You know, I didn't want to keep living the way I did, but I kind of didn't want to be sober. So that first few months of being around here, I wasn't. At a certain point in early 2006, um, there was a gentleman that I looked up to and he had quite a bit of time. And he was one of these people that whenever it was his turn to share, I would pay close attention. There were a number of people in my early days. And to this day, there still are a number of people that when they get up to share, uh, I'm paying close attention. Um, and, and he said, if the problem is something, somebody else, the problem is somebody else, then I'm screwed. If the problem is me, I could do something about that. And that kind of rang my bell because I was, I was already doing the work and in my fourth and fifth step, what was coming out, I would write certain things down and I would show it to my sponsor, but the things where it comes to my part were kind of incomplete. And, and the things that, that my sponsor, my first sponsor pointed out to me that were in there were things that are true for me to this day. Unreasonable expectation of others, um, blaming people for my situation, um, lack of accountability. So when this guy said to me that if the problem is somebody else that I'm screwed, but if the problem is me, I can do something about that. And, and he also said that if I wanted something that I had never had, I would have to do something that I had never done. And he kept saying that. I would hear him at different meetings. He would say this phrase and it kind of stuck. And at a certain point, they realized that my approach to my step work was purely mechanical, was purely superficial. I was writing things down. I was showing it to him. I was, I was uh, doing the things that were outlined in the book. There was a couple of things that uh, he, weren't he wasn't having me do that kind of pushed me to find a new sponsor once I finished steps. And particularly, he did not have me doing a fears inventory. He did not have me doing a sexual inventory. And I asked about that. And he said, no, no, don't have to worry about that. It's all in there. You've done it. That's fine. And I knew there were things that were incomplete. And like I said, I was terrified of people. I was terrified of change. I was terrified of a number of things. So I knew that I wasn't looking at the fears of the way I was outlined in the book. And I knew that I wasn't looking at my fears in a way that I needed to. Um, sometime because of the things that the gentleman I mentioned had, had taught me, I started being more honest with me and more honest things the, at, at, about the things that I was looking at. Um, for me, what I needed to do was get honest about that because if you're looking at things, if you're looking at me from the outside saying, Max, you need to change some things, and I might not see it, but when I'm looking at the things that I need to change, that's when the growth started happening for me. So at a certain point, I had to change my sobriety dates to the March of 2006, but I went from that sponsor to the next sponsor to the next. The second sponsor also did not have me doing a, a, a fears inventory. The third sponsor I had, we worked steps in a way that that I could I was satisfied that hey I all this stuff in the book I've done it. If you were to produce a checklist of, of the way this these steps are outlined in the book, I was satisfied that checklist was made. And um, again, there were other assignments that I had done with previous sponsors that uh, that I had uh, that weren't in the book that I found extremely useful. Um, I managed to switch to another sponsor in um, late 2007 and do a round of steps with him in early 2008. And uh, he also had a several, several assignments that weren't in the book, but the fifth step with him was a bit different. He had a, a, a medical condition and he had this device that was uh, hooked up to him and it was clearing fluid out of a particular uh, 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 area where he'd had some surgery. And in the middle of the fifth step, there was uh, a technician that came to redress the wound, clean out the machine and, and a bit of other stuff. And he said, um, hey, do you want to 
cut for now and then come back later? Or do you just want to wait and we'll finish this up after this is done? It'll take about an hour. And I said, I'll wait. I waited in his garage while, while he and this uh, uh, medical professional handled whatever this was with his, uh, with his device. There had been a number of things that I had shared with any previous sponsor, including a thing about my sobriety time. And I was sitting in his garage contemplating which ones I was going to share with him and which ones I would hold on to. And somewhere in that conversation, it had occurred to me that I was kind of playing Russian roulette that any one of these things, if I held on it, onto it, it could be the bullet that would take me out. And um, he, came, he came back, the, the medical personnel took off and we sat down and we finished everything that was, that was written down. And, um, and then he said, okay, is there anything else? And I said, okay, there's this, there's this, there's this, things that I was not going to write down because I didn't want some kind of trail of evidence, things that I told myself I would never tell anybody ever again. And that little bit about the, the fact that I've been lying about my sobriety time for a couple of years. And, uh, and then we finished and he said, he said, great. And I said to him, okay, do I have to really tell anybody that I got to reset my day? Because I've told you there's a level of honesty that I've accomplished here. Do I really have to like tell everybody else? And he's like, well, that depends on your love, your definition of integrity. I was like, you bastard. And, um, you know, so he gave me a good set of instructions and put me in contact with somebody who had to reset his, his sobriety time. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, I went about doing that at a certain point that was being public about that. Um, I had gotten involved in service early on. Uh, in 2005, I was involved with young people's groups. In 2006, there was a young people's conference at the Marriott Hotel that's about a five minute drive in that direction. And there were a number of us uh, uh, in the area that uh, were part of the host committee for that. Uh, at the time, Penny Pop, Peninsula Young People in AA was host committee for that. Uh, November, December of 2005, they, uh, they had some staffing issues. There were availabilities and uh, a gentleman came down from the peninsula, came to some of our meetings, said, hey, there's uh, availabilities on the committee, drove out to San, San Mateo and uh, ended up on host committee. And here I was, again, this was 2005, so it was high most of the time. Um, and, and we were taking positions on that committee. Um, and uh, February of, of 2006, the conference went off. It was, it was amazing. And, and then some of us got together in, and started Sikipaw, Santa Clara County Young People in AA with the hopes of bidding and bringing the conference back to our area, which we ended up hosting at the Hilton in downtown San Jose in 2015. Um, I had been heavily involved with the process of, of ACIPAW, uh, all California young people in AA for most of them, for that entire time, 2005 to 2015. And uh, that put me in contact with lots of people all over the state. It was amazing. I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend uh, attending Young People's Conference to anybody who's interested in that sort of thing. But I also wouldn't recommend that kind of involvement to anybody. Uh, it was, it, there were moments where it was difficult. There were mo moments where it was frustrating. There were moments where it was emotionally taxing, but I got the opportunity to do the things that I did and, and meet the people that I've met. Um, service has been a part of my recovery, has always been a part of my recovery, an intense part of my recovery, but I had a six or seven years and I got to the point where it's like, there's some strange things that happened to me six or seven years years. Things kind of got dull. I was angry most of the time. I, I was involved in service. I was deeply involved in service. And, and I, when I look back at that, it was this way of running away from myself, running away from my own recovery and the things that I need to change and convincing myself that this is unity and because it's unity and because it's service that it is recovery, but I wasn't doing the things that I needed for me. I was involved in way too much service at the time. Um, and, and when I hear people say, never say no to AA, it kind of makes my skin crawl because there are certain things, there are certain moments when people should say no. Here's a, here's a great example. If you're horrible at math, 
you should probably decline the treasury commitment. Just, just saying. It's just one of those things where if you don't have the skill set for the task at hand and you think it might be difficult for you to learn that skill set, maybe decline. If you're up for, hey, I don't have the skill set, but can somebody help me with it? Fantastic. Have at it. But for me at the time, right around the time I had six or seven years, I, I, I could see that there was, I was doing way too much and not taking care of my own needs. So for myself, I know what's appropriate level of, of commitment to the fellowship and what is appropriate. How do I balance that with a commitment to myself? Um, at the time, also, I was coming to terms with my own spiritual beliefs. I, I would manage to get by and kind of fit in for the most part, but at five, six, seven years, I could really tell that trying to conform to mainstream uh, uh, ideals wasn't working for me. And at about seven or eight years, I started announcing myself as being agnostic and, and exploring that. And what I found was it doesn't really matter what my beliefs are, as long as I'm asking myself what those are. Again, going back to that first conversation that I had with the, the guy who said, go to a meeting and the conversation we had after my first meeting was not based in you need to, you need to, you need to, you should, you should, you could, you could. That conversation was based in what you believe. And, and when I started looking at traditional literature with that in mind, what do I really believe at, about these things? What do I, as somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in the, in the existence of a theological entity, what do these things mean to me? That process was liberating. And I got to pursue that for me. Um, I, I, I grew up doing martial arts that was, although um, you know, as I was drinking and partying a lot in, in my youth, there was still involvement with martial arts. And so I'd been exposed to ideas of, of meditation. I'd been exposed to ideas of spirituality. And I'd been exposed to that in a way which does not in any way include any dogmatic religion or religious practices or, or theological uh, assertions. Um, so, so I got to rely on some of that from my upbringing when I got to explore these sorts of things. Um, I, I, at a certain point, started looking more at the fact that I'm, I'm more of an atheist than agnostic. And what I experienced in the process of, of publicly discussing what my beliefs are, are is that there's this, there's this phenomenon in mainstream AA where, depending on your geographic area, if you call yourself agnostic, the worst you're going to experience is a little bit of condescension from those around you and discouragement. Um, but even, even here in, in our area, which tends to be a little bit more accepting than some regions, I, I did experience it and still to this day experience quite a bit of this. When I let people know that I'm an atheist, there is a, quite a bit of hostility towards that. Um, but what I've found is that as long as I'm doing the things that I need to, to kind of not let any of that crawl under my skin or not take any of that personally and, and put that out there, what happens is, is phenomenal. There are people who have told me, you made it safe for me to stay. And, and that keeps me going. That gives me the strength to endure the level of animosity that I do experience from, from people who have rigid ideas about, about the, the, the program. Because that, those are the people I'm talking to, not the people who oppose what I, what I believe in, but the people that, that need some, some people like us, essentially, to say, hey, what are you doing? How does this work? How do I do this without a God? Um, in, in the process, when I started that, I, I, I'm glad Megan mentioned, hey, do you want a screenshot? Because it did remind me that I wanted to share this with you. Here's the book that, that my first book that I did used for a few years. And yeah, this has got all the coloring highlights and underlined marks everywhere that, and notes in the margin and all that. And then about six or seven years, I started using this book, which essentially has nothing in it except a couple of post-its where I wanted 
mark something and, and read it in a meeting later, but there's nothing in this. And what I found was when I'm, when I'm reading like this to take notes, I'm reading it from an intellectual point of view. I'm looking to weaponize this. I'm looking for useful stuff in meetings. I'm looking for useful stuff to prove my personal agenda. I'm looking for words. But when I'm reading it this way, I'm looking for ideas. And that contributed to the, the fact that a lot of my exploration from that moment forward was liberating because it's the ideas instead of the words, instead of sticking to the words. I might have mentioned it in this group before, but being a martial artist, there's this, there's this uh, story that a lot of the, uh, the old masters will, will tell. It's something about, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase because otherwise I'll slay it. Um, it's, it's something about a finger pointing at the moon. And if you're looking at the finger, you're not looking at the moon. The words point the direction. And we're supposed to walk in that direction instead of looking at the words themselves. And this was underscored by something that I heard in a meeting a couple of years ago that really kind of slapped me right across the face. This guy said, it is actually possible to die of starvation while reading a cookbook. And it was like, huh, I got to take the words and, and make them my own. I've got to take them and, and say what they mean to me and run with it. And, and for me, if I look at the words themselves, like many people do, it starts to get complex. That's why we have a lot of people who say things like, oh, hey, the book is written in this fashion, which is this cryptic thing. And it's like, yeah, Bill was rather educated. And yeah, he had Bob's help and the help of a number of people. So it, it, it seems like it's written in this fancy style, but still it's just written in English. Um, but when, when I look at the ideas, and, and, when I simplify it, it becomes a lot easier. Steps one, two, and three. One talks about powerlessness. Two is, is about, not so much about theology, but about change. And three is about making a decision. Step one, do I think that, hey, I might have a problem with my drinking and substance abuse. And for me, that was easy to see. I'm a multiple offender drunk driver, and occasionally I use some drugs. And if you give me a few drinks, it's just inevitable that at some point I'm going to drink and drive again. And two, when I'm at two, it's like, hey, this thing seems to be working pretty well for all you guys. Do I think even for a split second, do I think for a split second that it might work for me? If I do some of this, that I might be able to affect some change in my life. The minute I could say yes to that, step two is done. And step three is now on me to make that decision. When steps four and five, it's like I get to take inventory. And I know we use that word, kind of overuse that word so much so that a lot of us think we know what that means, but we really don't. What I really need to do is take a look at what needs to change and the skill sets that I have to move forward. Like, these are the things I need to do away with. Here are my weaknesses. Here are my strengths. What was taught to me is like my strengths are something that I can use to move forward with. And while I'm looking at my strengths, learn how to overcome my weaknesses and, and learn how to fill in the blanks that my weaknesses open up. Now, traditional AA tells me that these are the things, character defects, uh, shortcomings. What's the difference between a character defect and a shortcoming? The difference is it's the same thing. It's a weakness, uh, uh, a defect. Uh, uh, Bill just wrote in this way where if you use the same words over and over, it's kind of look dumb. So he likes to use different words each time. Um, in traditional AA, those are the things within me that cut me off from God. What does that mean to me being an atheist? My weaknesses are the things that cut me off from being my best self. So I need to take a look at those things. Step six, what does it mean? Willingness to change. Um, and again, I said, hey, at the beginning, I talked about if you think there's something that I need to change, I'm gonna hold on to that for a while. But when I see there's something that I need to change, now there's, there's, there's something there. When I'm sick of me, that's when change happens. And for me, that's kind of more about step six. Than, than the rest of the things that we talk about here, where it becomes, oh, what are your beliefs about God? It's one of those moments, again, we'll revisit God. And, and seven is a commitment to leading a life of change. 
learning what I can about how to move forward from with the skill set I have and overcome the weaknesses that I have. And when it comes to changing behaviors, changing attitudes, that's a little bit more clear than the way I just laid it out here. I can learn how more positive attitude, more positive outlook about my personal life. I can learn how to change behavior because if I can quit drinking, then what else is there that I can do? Uh, I can learn how to be less of an asshole to the people around me. I can learn to be respectful and compassionate and civil. Um, steps eight and nine are, are the means by which I go back through my past and kind of clean things up. I thought I understood this, but it wasn't until the point I had about eight years. And there was one amends that was on my first eighth step that I still hadn't done. And I had certain ideas about this. And, and I was sponsoring this guy and we got to step eight. And he's reading to me step eight. And he was, we were talking about the second half of step eight, which not many people talk about, which is become willing to make amends to them all. And we were talking about some of the, 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 uh, the obstacles that people face with that. And some of it is just, hey, they just don't wanna face these people, they're embarrassed. And, and I had a number of reasons about this particular amends that I didn't wanna make. And we were talking about these obstacles and these excuses that people have, and excuses that I have. And suddenly in that process, I realized, hey, this, this set of excuses around this particular amends that I should make is not substantial. There's nothing here. This is a bunch of nonsense. This is just rationalizations and excuses. And here are the real reasons why I don't want to make amends to this person. When I was able to take a look at those things a little bit more clearly, it was easier to confront that person and say, hey, we need to have a talk. And at a certain point after that, when I, when I looked and I go, hey, I've done just about all my amends except for okay i might owe somebody money that i borrowed last week or what but i could look back at my life and i can say to myself i i don't have any reason to feel self-conscious guilty embarrassed about any aspect of my history because of this process step 10 is just kind of doing that on a regular basis moving forward again with the things that i've learned where i get to see that uh, i do have strengths I've been using that phrase a lot. In the 12 and 12, uh, it's touched on that just a little bit. In, in, in step 10 in the 12 and 12, Bill talks about, uh, he says that not all inventories are written in red ink. And, and for those of you who, who don't know, apologize to those who do, it's, it's an old school uh, accounting term where, where debits were written in red and credits were written black. Red, bad, black, good. And we do have some assets. We do have some qualities that are positive qualities. Traditional AA doesn't really look at that. And it was only touched on barely in, in, in the 12 and 12. So it's not really talked about much. But what I've learned is that those are the things that I need to move forward with instead of constantly telling myself, this is bad. This must be done away with. This must be changed. That my strengths and my assets are those things that those qualities that I move forward from here. This is the starting point. This is what I'm working with instead of working against. Step 11, from a secular point of view. The funny thing about step 11 is that, is that a lot of people, when they get here, like me, like, hey, I got issues with the God thing. Everybody starts feeding all this stuff that's more about step 11 than it is about step or steps two or three. Well, you know, if you don't believe in God, you could use this, or you could use the nature, or you could use, uh, you know, the, the healing power of Alcoholics Anonymous, or you could use this. I, I did this stuff so quickly that when I really came to terms with my own secular beliefs that I couldn't deny that all of this had been working. Like I said, six, seven, eight years, really confronting the, the having that moment, I don't really believe in God. I'm like, maybe I don't want to be here. Well, why go look for something else when this has been working for six, seven, eight years? So really, what, what is it for me? Step 11 is about being more in conscious contact with the present moment as, as it presents itself. That's really it.
uh, I had the good fortune that, that, that a number of people that I look up to pointed me to some outside literature to help with exactly that. I was having a conversation with somebody at one point and they were talking about, hey, needing to be full attention, present in the moment, not distracted by my thoughts about the past, my misgivings about the past, and my hopes and fears about the future, but being really present in the moment. And I asked him, well, what if the present moment sucks? What then? And he looks at me and he says, well, that's great. That's awesome. And I was about to tell him to go fuck himself. And, and he says, this is the moment you need to be present in because that's the moment where you need to make more responsible decisions about your next action. And that kind of blew my mind because I can't think of the moment when my back was against the wall that I acted in a way that was responsible, that I acted in a way that I could be proud of myself. I always lashed out in some way that was negative or contributed more damage to the situation. I had no idea that by just owning the fact, hey, this is a horrible moment to be in, that I can actually act in a way that I could be proud of. It was a strange and novel concept to me. Step 12, the thing that's neglected about step 12 in a lot of areas in AA, a lot of, a lot of groups, particularly men's mainstream, everybody talks more about service and less about practicing principles. In, in chapter seven in the big book, it's all about working with others. Some, some hands-on checklists style writing of, hey, if this, if this happens, uh, do this. If he wants to tell war stories, tell war stories. If he wants to get sad, be sad with it. If he wants to laugh at it all, laugh at it all. If he wants to listen to you, talk, talk to him. If he wants you to listen, listen to him. Um, step 12 in the 12 and 12 talks much more about practicing principles in our personal lives. And that's much more useful because my personal life is where I create the most wreckage. Not in the rooms of AA, I create the most wreckage in my workplace, in my relationships, in my family, with my friends. I need to know how to interact with people more so than I need to know how to interact with a newcomer. And what I find is, is that when I'm present in the moment, when I'm doing my best to treat people in a way that I would want to be treated, these are the moments that I can be happy about. Now, many of you know that lately, um, the end of the year was rough around here. We had a number of deaths like in quick succession and, and some of these affected me directly and some of these not so much. And what I got to see was a community of people helping each other through all of this. I appreciate the, the, uh, the support I got from this group, the, the text messages, private messages from, from a number of people in this group who was just saying, hey, checking in, just seeing how you're doing. I got, to, I got to see a lot of that here. I got to see a lot of that in, in my local community. I got to be there for people who are going through things that I can't understand because the, the extreme nature of the loss that they experience because of some of these things. And, and those are the things that ordinarily, most of us are loaded for months at a time when we experience those sorts of things. And, and these are the things that we get to help each other through. Uh, like holding a small child's hand walking across the busy street. And it's a very humbling experience when I am that small child letting somebody hold my hand as I walk across the street because it's terrifying. I'm the type of person that doesn't do fear very well. Um, but what I was taught around here is that, you know, I needed to communicate to others how I feel if I want to get some help about that. There was a point at which in my recovery, I was going through something that was a bit rough. And I got in the habit of, of saying this particular phrase, run into somebody or at a meeting or, or at a friend's house or what have you. And, uh, hey, how are you doing? And it's a polite thing to say, I'm doing well. How are you? And then make small talk. And, and that's fine. But with people that I, I need their support, I got in the habit of, they said, how are you doing? I got in the habit of just saying, hey, I'd be lying if I said I was okay. And that was the easy way for me to open the door to say, hey, I'm going through some stuff. These days, I, 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 can, I can have those conversations more easily than, than I could when I was newer. And I'm very, very careful about, uh, about who I choose to be, to be uh, completely transparent with. Uh, not because I'm afraid of, of uh, somebody's opinions of me, 
but I'm careful because I want to make certain that I'm getting the advice from somebody that I respect. That, that's particularly what, what I'm discreet about. Before I, I caught myself in this thing because, well, the girl left and my ass is on fire and I'm happily going through it. And I found myself telling specific things to some to specific people and just going, well, I'm being honest because I'm not doing well and I need some help and I'm reaching out. And what I found out that I was really doing, I was picking specific people and giving the narrative in a certain way so that I had hoped it would like the, the rumor mill would get around and it would get back to her in a certain way. And then she'd realize how how badly she screwed up. And, and I realized, wow, that's gross. I'm doing that. And so I learned how to be a lot more discreet about what I share, why I share, what's my own personal agenda, and with whom I'm sharing those things so I can get the help I need. The last few years, I've been working out of uh, this book, Alternative, Alternative 12 Steps, Secular Guide to Recovery. Martha Cleveland and Arliss G. I've gotten a lot of out of that book. I know many people in this group have been using uh, uh, Getting Silver, Staying Silver Without God. I'm looking forward to getting into that book quite a bit more. Um, I appreciate the you guys asking me to share tonight. I hope you got something out of that. If you're new here, if you have questions about God, if you have questions about atheism, ask the questions, ask away. I have found that what I'm really amazed about this group is the fact that anytime somebody has asked those questions, like that meeting after the meeting, a lot of those questions get answered in the nature of the way people are networking behind the scenes is, is uh, it's very uplifting. I love the way that everybody here supports each other. Um, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share. If you're new here, I highly encourage you to get a sponsor, ask them what steps are all about and get involved to the extent that you're, that you're, uh, but you can. Um, something that was is said a lot. You don't have to drink again if you if you don't want to. And something that was said by like two or three people when I was new, it's like you don't have to drink again even when you do. And I found that by the time we're drinking sounded like a really good idea. All the things that we do around here were habitual enough for me that I just kept moving along. It was just routine. It was mechanical. And mechanical and superficial was kind of weak for me, but it put me in the position where I would tell people what was going on with me. And then I would kind of take some suggestions and we'd get through those low spots of recovery. So that idea that even those moments when I didn't want to drink, I still stuck around. And I'm here today. Thank you very much for my sobriety. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you so much.